If you're looking to get a better understanding of your metabolism and why it's so important for health, weight loss, and performance, then this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show is for you. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you'll hear the real-world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 66 of the show. Today on the show, I have Dr. Mike T. Nelson, an expert in human metabolism, metabolic flexibility, and heart rate variability. He's an online trainer, an adjunct professor, and faculty member at Carrick Institute. He's a presenter and creator of the Flex Diet Certification. The techniques he's developed and the results Mike gets for his clients have been featured in international magazines, in scientific publications, and on websites across the globe. In his free time, he enjoys spending time with his wife, lifting odd objects, reading research, and kiteboarding as much as possible. You can find out more about him at his website at www.miketnelson.com. Again, on the show, we talk about metabolic flexibility and dive into all of the factors that impact our body's ability to effectively utilize both fat and carbohydrate. Uh, when the body utilizes those most, whether it's at rest or at exercise, and how to manipulate those variables from a nutrition, lifestyle, and training standpoint. Uh, so we'll go ahead and jump into the show real quick before we do. If you guys are enjoying these episodes of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, then do me a huge favor and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Give me a five-star review on iTunes, as well as leave me a positive review. It'd really be so appreciated if you could take the time to do that, as well as share this with someone that you think could benefit. I'm so appreciative to have you as a listener, and uh, let's go ahead and jump in with Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. What's going on, man? Hi, I'm doing good. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. Greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm super psyched to have you. I'm a big fan uh, for you. two reasons. One is you're a super smart dude, and um, you have an unbelievable amount of education and knowledge around all things nutrition, health, lifestyle, strength training, all that good stuff. Um, two is you are from Minnesota, which is where I hail right. from. The, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the great frozen tundra. So, uh, it is. yeah, man. Um, how's uh, how's everything been going? It's been pretty good. I just did a seminar for two days in uh, Canada, which oddly was warmer than here. Um, but we left, and it was eleven below Fahrenheit in the morning. Uh, our car just like <laughs> barely started, and we just left it on and drove to the airport and threw it in the ramp. And right. uh, hopefully, it'll be you know warmer when we <laughs> when we get back. But it. Started fine when oh, we got man. back, and today's not too bad. It's like 10 above, so it's supposed to get into the 20s, I guess. So, eh, you know. <laughs> I don't miss those days. Uh, in fact, one of my friends posted a picture the other day and of the, you know, the temperature, and it was colder in Minnesota than it was in Antarctica. 
Yeah, I my wife's still a little unhappy with me because I was in Baja for eight days kiteboarding, and oh. it was like the coldest it had been all winter. It was twenty six below Fahrenheit one morning, so. Yeah. Yeah, she was not happy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I escaped to Arizona as soon as I possibly could. Yeah, but all right, well let's uh, let's jump in. We're talking um, nutrition. We're talking about we're talking metabolism. We're talking about metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. Um, but before we jump into that stuff, maybe just a real quick background so our listeners know who you are, what you're all about. Yeah. So the semi-short background is I initially went to college, did a bachelor of arts in natural science, and then I did. Uh, two years postgraduate work in engineering. So I was going to be an engineer working biomedical type stuff. I uh, decided not to get a second bachelor's and went into the master's program there. So I ended up doing a master's in mechanical engineering. Okay. All my classwork was really in biomechanics, but I ended up doing a heat transfer project. In essence, I created a, the military now calls it the active denial system, but it's basically a ray gun. <laughs> so you put it on the back of a truck and you point it at a crowd of people. And because it's in the gigahertz, it feels like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb. So people try to disperse uh, away wow, from that's it. That's interesting. Yeah. And this was back in the, I finished that 1999. So at the time they said, Oh, you know, it's for collision avoidance systems on cars. And I'm like, it's sponsored by Brooks air force base in Texas. <laughs> like, what the hell do they care about collision avoidance right. systems on cars? And so I created it and published a computer-generated model where you could run a whole bunch of different scenarios through. And about five years after I finished that, my advisor sent me this clipping from a paper that says, uh, military declassifies ray gun. And he's like, yeah, this was like the research you did. He's like, it was so classified, we couldn't tell you it was classified. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I did that. And... At the same time, I loved exercise phys. I mean, I took uh, anatomy and physiology using cadavers as part of my undergrad. Um, I just took exercise phys at a graduate level, literally for fun. I just mm -hmm. talked to the professor and said, yeah, I just want to take your class for fun. And he's like, nobody takes 400 level exercise phys classes for fun. I'm like, well, I don't need any credit. So if I fail, it's not bad, right? Right. So, okay. Um, so he let me in. And so when I finished, I started working for a biomedical company, which I worked for for over 10 years. Uh, looking at cardiology products. So I did implantable pacemakers, defibrillators, uh, things of that nature. And about two years after I started that, they said, hey, we'll pay for you know more college if you want to go back to school. I'm like, great. So I just started doing more advanced physiology classes. Uh, I was in the PhD program for biomedical engineering for about four years at the University of Minnesota and ended up dropping out of that because I just did not want to do any more math stuff. Um, yeah. I, I didn't realize that there's actually lots of math beyond Calc 4. I, <laughs> I didn't think that was possible, but I guess there is. Um, so I went over to the exercise physiology department, and literally the first day I sat down, my advisor comes out and he's like, all right. It was like the first staff meeting. It's like, we have two new projects. Uh, one's on heart rate variability and one's on metabolic flexibility, and they both involve math. And so he looks around the table and he points at me. He's like, hey, you, new math boy, whatever the hell your name is. He's like, these are your projects now. My first thought was, you gotta be effing kidding me. I, I came over here to avoid doing more math and like yeah. day one, I get like more math. Um, but it turns out to be pretty good because what I was looking at is, can we use some sort of a mathematical modeling to maybe improve heart rate variability? And then really, can we look at this, what's called fine scale variability across physiologic systems? 
right? So if we sit down and we measure your heart rate at rest, yeah, we can run an average, we can get some pretty cool information. But if we really get down to the millisecond differences between one heartbeat and the next, we can do a variability analysis and that'll give us heart rate variability. So can we do something similar with metabolism? We hook you up to a metabolic heart, we look at the RER, so respiratory exchange ratio, how much you're using fat, how much you're using carbs. Instead of just taking the average, which is classically done, can we do a variability analysis of that? And maybe that will give us a marker for metabolic flexibility. Um, so that's how I kind of fell into those topics. Probably started that almost like 12, 13 years ago. And then in around 2006, I just started training people. I mean, I had trained many people for five years before, but mm -hmm. the typical classic thing people do is like, oh, I don't know, I'll just write a program for you. Right. You know, nobody does anything because there's no exchange of value. Um, so I started training people in 2006, did the whole thing, worked at a gym for a while. Gym filed bankruptcy, so I got pissed off and started adding more equipment to my garage and just started training people there and later moved to training people online right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you've done a lot of stuff in the field, so I appreciate, you know, Thank all you. of that and, and you're definitely spreading the word and, and I love your, your mission. Um, so let's talk metabolism and, and yeah. let's set the stage a little bit here. So for our listeners, because we hear the, the word, the term metabolism a lot, maybe you could just, you know, let us know a little bit about metabolism. Like what exactly is our metabolism? Why is it relevant? Yeah, so I think of metabolism at just a high level is how does your body take things and make energy, right? So obviously we're breathing. So we're doing some exchange of oxygen and we're expelling CO2. And then we're taking different fuel things from the body, which could be stored carbohydrates like glycogen, yeah. could be stored fat, which most people are trying to get rid of for body composition goals. And obviously the food that we eat becomes part of that whole equation. So metabolism to me is kind of people looking for performance and body comp is where the, the rubber kind of meets the road. Mm -hmm. So how does exercise impact that? How does nutrition impact that? Uh, we're learning a lot more about even how lifestyle and stress and sleep and everything else Im impact that also. So to me, it's kind of the, the crossover of all of those and where they meet. And and so how would you classify a healthy metabolism in general? Is, is do, we, do we have different... Uh, metabolic rates. I think one of the common misconceptions or, 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 you know, something that's talked about frequently is the fact that someone may have a slow metabolism or a fast metabolism. Right. Um, where does the you know, differentiation lie between one person and another person? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And classically, we think of it as this static thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you would come into the lab, we do something called an RMR. So resting metabolic rate, which means that if you were hanging out at home, just watching TV, you're still burning too many calories for a classic RMR. Right. So classically, you lay down, close your eyes, don't do yeah. anything, try not to fall asleep. But other than that, like how many calories does it take for your body to burn and just keep the lights on without yeah. you doing anything at all? And then obviously we have the other portion, which is more movement related could formally be exercise. Uh, it could be just how much you move around during the day, how much you twitch. And then we throw in kind of digestion, or what's called the thermic effect of food. So how many calories it takes you to digest and process food with protein being a higher amount. And it is true that that will change across population. 
Uh, it can change over time by adding lean muscle. Doesn't yeah. change as much as what we would think though. Right. But in general, bigger people with more muscle are going to have a higher metabolic rate. One, because their resting metabolic rate is generally going to be higher. And two, they have to move all that mass around all day, right? So if we put a 100-pound backpack on you and left it on you all day and told you to walk around and just do your life normally, assuming you don't make any changes, then you're going to burn more calories. The caveat I would add to all of that is that's a little bit oversimplistic, although it is correct. And now we can add a dynamic nature to it. So how does your metabolism respond to exercise? How does it respond to lifestyle? How mm -hmm. does it respond to periods of overfeeding and underfeeding? Right. And all of those parameters to some degree or another will actually change. And in terms of metabolic flexibility, I, at the risk of making it more complicated, I would toss in how well does your body use the correct fuel at the right time? So if we're just hanging out having a discussion here, the main fuel we should be using is actually fat. If we were to go to the gym and do the old school Bill Starr, maybe five by five, you know, on deadlifts, then we want to primarily be using carbohydrates as we're executing those lifts. And I think that's some parts where it gets rewired, right? So classic exercise phys textbooks would say, it doesn't matter, right? Everybody at rest is just burning a lot of fat, so don't worry about it, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually not true. There's studies from uh, Hilge, uh, one by Gadecki, uh, one study I did, showing that how well people burn fat at rest and low intensity exercise varies between about 20 to 93 percent. Hmm. Some people, even these quote unquote healthy people, are pretty good at doing it, right? So probably no changes need to be made to them. Uh, other people are just burning through a piss ton of carbohydrates just hanging out at rest. Uh, which I would argue is not a healthy metabolism. And you can do it, but you're kind of going the wrong direction. Is that, uh, is that something that is just inherent in their you know, genetics or uh, their, their body type or with their biochemical individuality? Or is that something that's um, you know, a metabolic adaptation to something in their lifestyle or stress or sleep or something like that? Yeah, so we don't know how much of a genetic component there is. I would imagine there probably is. Like a lot of things in exercise phys, there's a fair amount of genetic differences. Mm -hmm. right? So you can look at one of them, like the Heritage Trial showed that uh, VO2 max, so how well you can use oxygen at a maximal rate of exercise, has an extremely high genetic component to it. Now, of course, you can still train it. You can still get better. Right. But if they said, okay, I want to be the elite of the elite uh, genetic freak athlete. Yeah, you probably can change it, but if you don't have those genetics, you're probably going to be pushing uphill pretty hard, right? The rumor was Lance Armstrong had his VO2 max tested when he was younger. And comparative to elite cyclists, his VO2 max is lower than other cyclists. But the rumor was that he was age 18 and got tested in Texas, and he was already in like the mid to high 70s. So yeah. very high without a ton of training. Yeah. Uh, so there is a genetic component. Um, my gut feeling is a lot of it is related to stress, which could be from exercise, could be from poor lifestyle, uh, could be from a whole bunch of other things, could be from massive amounts of training, and then probably related to nutrition, right? We know that if you are eating a ton of carbohydrates, and especially if you're not exercising a lot, 
In a healthy person, you will change to use carbohydrates as the main sort of fuel. And if we look at how metabolism changes with stress, in general, as I stress your system more, you're going to move to use more carbohydrates, like the example we used of going to the gym. So people I've seen, and again, there's not much literature in this area, their resting heart rate variability tends to be skewed. Their resting heart rate tends to be higher, although still in a quote-unquote healthy range. They tend not to do any low-intensity aerobic training. They don't move a lot. And so I think all of those things combined with you know, higher amounts of carbohydrates the, tend to push the body to burning more carbohydrates as a fuel and not able to downregulate to use fat as well. And so we want to be in balance. I mean, from a, from a healthy standpoint, from an optimal standpoint, to say nothing, let's just, let's just talk about health and, and disregard sure. performance for a second and say for the average person, in order to be healthy, there should be some, some variability here between these, uh, you know, between our fat burning capacity and between our carbohydrate burning burning capacity and the body should be kind of bouncing back and forth between those two depending on the uh you know the stress at play yeah so to me because everything in physiology is dynamic and when we start losing that dynamic ability we could use that as a rough marker for disease or lack of health right so we take the case of metabolic flexibility you know how far up on the end of carbohydrate use can you go right, which maybe we could use max exercise and some other markers there. And then how far down on the use of fat can you go, right? So it's kind of a human dynamic range. We want the greatest range we can mm -hmm. possible. We want to do the right fuel for the right task, right? So hanging out mostly fat, exercise more carbohydrate-based. And exactly what you said is a transition. So how fast can we switch back and forth between those two? So for example, in someone who is very metabolically inflexible, which we know is a marker of uh, disease progression, like type two diabetes. Yeah. If we just sit down and we gave them like two Pop-Tarts to eat and we measure how high their body can upregulate to use carbohydrates because we just gave them a massive influx of carbohydrates. If they're not as metabolically flexible, they don't go up as high as someone who is. Right. So you can look at something called the RER, respiratory exchange ratio. So in mm. a study where they did a mixed meal that was higher in carbohydrates, subjects went from about a 0.85 to about a 0.87. That didn't really move that much towards carbohydrate use, where people who were healthy started out at a lower number, right? Because this is measured before the meal. They were around 0.75, right? So 0.7 is 100% use of fat. And they went up to about 0.95 after the meal. So they really shifted hard to use carbohydrates. And in other studies, if you measure what happens after they kind of burn through those carbohydrates, they shift back to now using fat as they get closer to a fasted state again. So their system is able to dynamically respond mm -hmm. to different challenges and stressors by upregulating higher and faster and then downregulating on the backside of that harder and faster. How much do we sabotage this uh, or downregulate this, you know, this dynamic mechanism at play when we um, do things like uh, intense dieting or, uh, you know, specific forms of dieting that restrict 
macronutrients like a ketogenic diet, um, things like lack of sleep, how much do these types of things influence that dynamic flexibility within that range? Yeah, so we're just starting to get that figured out right now. So there is published data showing that uh, poor sleep or just um, reducing sleep. So one of the studies they did for four nights in a row, they had people sleep normally eight hours and then they had them sleep only four hours, right? So they did a randomized crossover uh, design. So both groups got, each person got the eight hours and they also got the four hours. And they compared and looked at these different conditions. So eight hours, everything was pretty normal, pretty good. On uh, the four hours, what we saw was uh, slight changes in cortisol, uh, pretty big changes in growth hormone, and very big changes in how well they could downregulate to use fat. So their body was actually releasing more fat into the bloodstream. So their triglycerides went up a little bit, but how well they were using that as a fuel started to get impaired. Mm. On the carbohydrate end of the spectrum, it was the same thing. They could not use carbohydrates uh, quite as well either. So they're getting crunched from both ends of the spectrum. And what's fascinating is that study was done in healthy individuals and after only four nights of cutting their sleep in about half. This was not done in a diseased population. So we do know that sleep does impact that. Um, a study from about four years ago took people and they locked them up in a metabolic chamber. They said, okay, you people, we're going to lock you for 48 hours in a metabolic chamber. One condition, uh, both of you are going to sleep eight hours. So we're not changing how long you sleep. However, in the one instance, we're going to fracture your sleep. So every hour we have this alarm go off and you have to register that you heard the alarm and turn it off. You can go back to sleep. So most of the time, what's funny is that they don't remember turning the alarm off maybe a few times, but they don't remember all eight incidents. Yeah. What they saw was under the two conditions, when their sleep was fractured just by waking up once every hour, which is not really that unrealistic when you start looking at sleep data, uh, their ability to use fat as a fuel source was cut in half. So it impaired their body's ability to use fat. If we think about a higher level, that makes sense, right? Because that's a stressor every hour. Yeah. When you get stressed, the healthy individual is going to shift a little bit more to use carbs and then back. Um, and again, that study was done in healthy individuals, not a diseased state. If we look at different types of diet, like a ketogenic diet, which is like super popular now, there's a pro and con to it. The, the pro, I guess you could argue, is that uh, ketogenic diets in general will push insulin very low. Mm -hmm. And overall, I would say that's probably a good thing, especially for a disease state. Um, so if you look at Jeff Bullock's FASTER study, they took people who were well over a year on a ketogenic type diet, pretty high level athletes, they did a whole bunch of stuff. They did muscle biopsies. They stuck them on a treadmill at about 72% of the VO2 max, had them exercise for three plus hours. And what they found was that the ability of their body to use fat was about twice as high as what any textbook had reported. So in terms of uh, fat use, they literally rewrote the textbook on what is the maximal amount of fat somebody could use. So people are like, oh, yes, ketogenic diet. We want to upregulate fat. This is amazing. Everybody needs to do it. Well, but the downside with that is that your ability to do all-out speed and yeah, power sure. especially becomes compromised. So in that study, they did not have them go anything above 100% of their VO2 max. So no wing gates, no power testing at all. 
And if you talk to athletes who do a ketogenic approach, I literally just talked to a former client last night. She's like, oh man, she's like, I'm, I'm going back to eating carbohydrates because she's like, I went to deadlift yesterday and I actually had to sit down between reps. <laughs> um, because you're going to lose that top end speed and power because you've upregulated the fatty acid and the spectrum so high. And what happens on that, to get a little bit technical, there's an enzyme called PDH, so pyruvate dehydrogenase. And you can just think of that as that's the gatekeeper to your glycolysis, right? It's a gatekeeper to your carbohydrate running machinery. So even if we take someone on a ketogenic diet and they're like, oh, I got this, you know, obstacle course racer, you know, CrossFit thing coming up. You're like, oh, wait, I read that glycogen is super important for speed and power and performance. And you're absolutely correct. So I'm just going to eat a piss ton of, you know, pasta and whatever, like two days before. I'm going to refill my glycogen stores. I've got this super high amount of fat adaptation. Boom, I'm going to go out and like destroy everyone. But what they forget is that the body's ability, the carbohydrate machinery has been kind of downregulated. So even though the fuel is still present, the body's ability to use that at the highest percentage, right? And so we're talking a drop of, you know, single digit percentage. So it's not massive, but if you're an elite athlete, that is massive to them, that that has been downregulated. So even when you give them back carbohydrates and refill glycogen and you go to do performance immediately after that, you still have a loss of that speed and power. Um, so that's the downside with that. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a couple of weeks that you know, kind of transition out of that, you know, you might be all right. We don't know exactly how long this enzyme is upregulated or downregulated for, but in that case, that's what kind of the cost is. Now, if you don't exercise to a high level and you're okay with taking the 7% loss off of the top, cool, not, not a big deal, right? But if you're trying to push that into the spectrum, then you want to be aware of that. Not a big deal because, because it's gonna improve insulin uh, or keep insulin levels low and it's gonna improve fat oxidation or fat utilization. But what are the implications in terms of, um, you know, potentially reintroducing carbs down the road or, yeah. you know, I feel like most people are using ketogenic diets for fat loss. And so, of course, we have to take calories into consideration here simply because yep. you're, you're eating more fat, therefore you're oxidizing more fat, ideally, which, which makes sense. And you're, you don't need, you know, carb utilization. But what happens when you're reintroducing carbs are you potentially diminishing the body's ability like you said with the pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme are you um, affecting the body's ability to utilize carbs uh, in any significant way you know when upon reintroduction yeah so i've worked with quite a few people now who are like what i call kind of post keto who are more performance yeah um, and even a lot of them maybe their main goal is body composition too but like, you don't really want to compromise your performance in the gym because that's just really demotivating, even if you're not formally competing against other people. And so the two main changes are the PDH change that we talked about. And the other part, which you brought up, which is a great point, is a change in the local insulin sensitivity at the muscle level. So if you want to go deep down the, the nerd shoot on that, you have what's called a non-pathological change in local insulin resistance at the muscle level, which in English means that if you're in a ketogenic state, right, your brain says, hey, I need glucose. I like glucose. Yeah, I can run off of ketones. That works good too. 
but I still like glucose. Mm -hmm. I want any of those pesky muscles taking up any of my glucose because now glucose is in very short supply. The brain's like, no, I don't want to go into muscles. Screw them. They can go use ketones or something else. I want to use ketones and I want to use glucose. So what happens at the muscle level is your insulin sensitivity can change, meaning that it actually appears to go in what we would say is the wrong direction. Yeah. Right? And these are different than a type 2 diabetic state. So a type 2 diabetic state, you can have an insulin resistance at the muscle level, meaning you need to put out more and more and more insulin to basically shove glucose into the muscle. Well, that also happens in a ketogenic state, but it doesn't mean that it's a pathology or a bad thing. It's gotcha. a temporary thing. Yeah. It's a temporary thing to spare glucose for the brain. Right? So now you've got a muscle that has a harder time getting carbohydrates and glucose into it. Now that won't change day one when you start adding more carbohydrates. It's gonna take a while to change. We don't know exactly how long, but what I've noticed is people who go from very hardcore ketogenic for several weeks to months to possibly years, you have to be very careful with the slower introduction of carbohydrates. If you just randomly yeah. give them 300 grams of carbs, they get massively hyper and hypoglycemic, not all of them, but a fair amount of them. Um, so what I'll do with that is I'll slowly move up their carbohydrates and then I'll probably place their carbohydrates at a point where they can handle them a little bit better, which ideally would be post uh, some type of high intensity training or some post weight training. Yes. Look at what happens during weight training. We have all of the counter regulatory hormones get elevated. So epinephrine, norepinephrine, glucose, Maybe there's some GH changes, that's a little bit debatable. But basically, all the things that help you handle carbohydrates better. We have non-insulin mediated uptake, which is just being able to get glucose in without the use of insulin because of muscle movement. And then we've got insulin mediated translocation of the GLUT4 trans or receptor. And all that means is we've got this little receptor that hides kind of in the cell. When insulin goes up, it moves to the outside of the cell and is able, better able to take glucose into the cell. And we know that exercise also helps with those processes. So yeah. I will preferentially add a little bit more carbohydrates post-exercise as people tend to feel a little bit better, right? We have these hormones that are elevated to reduce the chance of them becoming hypoglycemic. And then I'll slowly kind of spread them out over time in the next couple of weeks and couple of months. You know, I think that's a really important point in talking about the body's response to carbohydrate and to insulin when you're in a ketogenic state and the amount of people that are quote unquote ketogenic when in reality, um, at least the people that I talk to, they're not actually in a ketogenic state or they're right. not actually following a ketogenic diet as well as the belief that you can do a ketogenic diet during the week and then do whatever you want on the weekend. Yeah. And in, uh, in, invariably, you're in this sort of uh, substrate no man's land of yep. not really effectively utilizing fats as you're not in, ke in ketosis because of the amount of time it takes to make that transition, but you're also not effectively utilizing carbohydrate because of the amount of fat that you're taking in and uh, potentially what you're doing because of the high fat intake. I see this consistently with a misinterpretation of what exactly is, you know, ketogenic diet and, uh, and, and what have you. Is that something that you've experienced? 
Yeah. I mean, I remember probably I'm old now. I have like gray hair and shit, but I remember reading about this back when uh, Zampano was probably one of the first people to come out with this, like the cyclic ketogenic diet. Yeah, and Marv D. Um, Pasquale. D. Pasquale had the anabolic diet, yeah. and there's been all sorts of different variations of this, especially in bodybuilding circles for a long time. And on paper, I've always looked at it, and you know, it goes, wow, this seems to make a lot of sense, right? right. Monday through Friday, I'm going to be pretty right. strict. I'm going to upregulate the use of fat. I'm going to have this carb refeed on the weekend. It'll be great. I get to hang out with my buddies. We go eat pancakes. Then I go to the gym. My lifts are better. And I've tried various versions of this for a long time. And it's always a debacle. <laughs> it just yes. seems like it's, a, it's just a shit show. I've only had like one person who was like able to do it. And I don't know why. Um, if we look at the research, there's not much research on it. I mean, we know adaptations, right? We know the insulin changes, we know PDH changes. Uh, Jacob Wilson's lab did do one study on it, although they did some funky stuff with carb refeeding. And in short, what they saw is they tried to do a ketogenic diet Monday through Friday, a carb refeed Saturday and Sunday, and then back to ketogenic. Yeah. In short, what they found was they didn't really become ketogenic again until about Thursday which kind of jives with what I see in the real world. The only people I've seen who have been able to get away with this are people who were ketogenic for possibly years. Um, and in the study, which again, would need to be replicated, they actually saw some loss of lean body mass. The performance kind of went up, but the performance was measured after their carb refeed, which mm, I kind of question in terms of power, vertical jump, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so, in theory, it's one of those things that kind of makes sense. I've just, in practice, I've never seen it work that well. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree, though, that I think most people are in that metabolic no man's land where they're saying, I'm doing a CKD, I'm a cyclic ketogenic diet person. And what they're really doing is they're just manipulating carbohydrates. Exactly. So I'm like, hey, what macros are you at? They're like, oh, you know, I'm a 200 pound dude, bro, and well, I'm eating 200 grams of protein, right. and I'm getting, you know, 80 grams of carbs during the week. And on the weekend, I'm getting like 300 grams. It's like, well, your fat's not high enough during the week. Your protein's probably too high. And you feel like shit Monday through Friday. And then you feel great on the weekend because you get to eat pancakes and everything else. That's so right. You feel like you want to take a nap Sunday night and you sleep for 12 hours and then you kind of do it all over again. That's right. Hey, brother, are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman, father, and husband? I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you want to find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. That's it. That's exactly it. And, and I don't, you know, we don't need to spend any more time talking about the ketogenic diet and, and, its, and its pros and cons because there's plenty on all, on all aspects. But sure. I think it's a great segue into flexible dieting and how to take advantage of this 
metabolic flexibility. So let's say we're working with a healthy person or, or potentially working with an athlete or someone that has performance or body composition goals. And because of this uh, metabolic flexibility, because of the body's you, you know, ability to bounce back and forth, we can manipulate those variables uh, in, in some strategic way. So maybe you could talk to us about how we can do that from a flexible dieting standpoint. Yeah, so flexible dieting as a whole, if you look at flexible dieting compared to rigid dieting, there's pretty good research now showing a more flexible approach is better, just mostly on the adherent side. Yeah. Um, and I have seen people who can get away with you know both. They don't seem to mind either way. But most of the population, if you give them more options, I would say within a controlled area, <clears throat> they do better. All right, so the analogy I've used is if you're a coach, imagine like you're taking your client to the bowling lane and you're going to do bumper bowling, right? And I stole this probably from Ben House too, that left to their own, they're probably going to be throwing a whole bunch of gutter balls and they may even get the bowling ball possibly even in the wrong lane, right? Left to their own device, they're all over the map. But you don't really, telling them to bowl strikes every day, that's an extremely high level skill. That's not going to work for someone who's right. you know, day one. But if we put and inflate the little bumper things in the, the gutters, and now I've confined you, okay, stay in this lane. You can swerve and oscillate all you want, but just stay in this lane. You get the ball down to the end, cool, we already won. Right? So I'm allowing you some flexibility to yeah. kind of navigate and learn, right? Because part of learning is making mistakes. But you're not getting like three lanes down and completely screwing yourself up for weeks on end where we've got to kind of backtrack and do a bunch of other stuff. So I think a flexible approach is going to be better just all around for that. If we look at a more micro level, so if someone's goal is kind of performance, body comp, like the template I use a lot is Monday, Wednesday, Friday-ish, maybe Saturday, do some type of weight training, right? Those days, your main fuel is going to be carbohydrates, right? Because you need to run glycolysis for that performance. So I will have their carbohydrates be a little bit higher on those days. Tuesday, Thursday, maybe Sunday, usually Sunday leaves if it's an off day for food prep. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say those three days, do some moderate intensity cardio, right? I'm a big fan of using the rower, which I got from Dr. Kenneth J. And lower carbohydrates a little bit on those days. When you say moderate intensity cardio, what uh, specifically does that mean? Yeah. So most people I've seen, their aerobic base is pretty crappy, mm -hmm. right? So their ability to aerobically use fat and use oxygen is not super high. So I'll start them actually really low. I'll be like, hey, you know, just maybe get on a rower or on a bike and do 20 minutes or on a rower, you can do like a 5K. And in a perfect world, I would do that in the morning and I would do that fasted. And you can kind of do the filmophotone, the 180 minus your age, although I find in practice that may be too low for some people, may be okay for some other people. So if I'm, you know, I have a 40 year old, 180 minus 40 is going to put their max heart rate during that low intensity session at about 140. Um, the other thing I've used more lately, which I got from uh, Rob Wilson and Brian McKenzie at the Art of Breath, is just nasal breathing. Like, okay. so just do it, only breathe through your nose. Because one, okay. I know that's going to limit them. Because otherwise, they have a tendency without a limiter to turn everything into high intensity exercise. Sure. So I want to try to limit them either nasal breathing or uh, via heart rate to start. So, yeah, so relatively low, low to moderate intensity. Okay. Yeah, definitely. 
Got it. That makes sense. Um, okay. So, so then on those days, uh, you were saying those are going to be uh, lower carbohydrate. Yeah, I'll go lower carbohydrate because one, they don't really need it to do the lower intensity work. Um, they had some higher carbs to do their performance. Uh, two, I'm actually cycling calories throughout the week. Um, and three, my goal on that day is more upregulation of fat as a fuel source, which is why, although I get lots of hate mail about it, I will actually have them do it, if possible, fasted first thing in the morning. Um, the reason for that is insulin will be lower. Uh, liver glycogen will be a little bit lower. It's normally easier because left to their own devices, the, the kind of meatheads in a positive way that I work with, hate doing low-intensity cardio. So they'll find every excuse in the book just not to do it. And if you tell them to do it at the end of their day, the odds of it happening are like very minor. Yep. Um, and then maybe there's some body comp benefit to that, although there's not a lot of direct studies. As you probably know, the main study done with that was done by Brad Schoenfeld, a six-week study in female athletes, although they did not use a metabolic heart, so we don't know what exact substrate they were using, um, didn't show a difference. So some other studies hint that maybe FAST is a little bit better, but in terms of a direct randomized controlled trial, we don't have a ton of data on that. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Now, your carbohydrate cycling, are you also calorie cycling? In, in which case, on your uh, non-training days, would calories invariably just be lower because of the lack of carbohydrate? Yeah. So the super simple approach I do is I'll set the protein, which will probably stay throughout the week. I'll set their fat, which will probably stay throughout the week, especially okay. starting. And then carbohydrates will kind of go up and down. So yep. by virtue of doing that, you're correct that their calories will also oscillate them too. Yeah, I, I found that works very well. So I'm in 100% agreement. And I'm also in 100% agreement that meatheads like me hate doing uh, yeah. you know, in moderate intensity. <laughs> and I will avoid it like the plague, but I love doing high intensity, which ends up crushing me. So go yeah. figure. You, you, I guess you know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> one quick caveat that I found on that, like my hybrid, again, I stole this from Dr. Kenneth J in the carrot course that we're doing a human performances. So I will have them go on a rower and do a 2k, which the people haven't done is, is pretty brutal, but it's getting to be long enough that it's definitely more on the aerobic side than say a mm -hmm. 500 meter, right? So 500 meter row, most meatheads are easily going to do under two minutes. Yeah. You know, the 2k, if they get under eight minutes, I'm pretty happy on like the first, first go round, even eight and a half. I'm, I'm relatively happy ish. I mean, that's for competitive rowers. That's a pretty poor time, but they're not competitive rowers. Right. Um, and then from there, I'll parcel out either an interval or a low intensity uh, aerobic type work. And normally what I've been doing lately is I'll take the part because usually those teams start out really well. They'll just suffer through the middle and they'll, then they'll kind of hit a little sprint at the end. And that difference between the beginning and that part where they're just suffering, you can just watch them just kind of drop. Mm -hmm. So I'll take that sort of middle area and I'll chop that out. And then that sometimes will become their lower intensity work. So mm. I'm taking a percentage off of that. And then at some point, I'll have them repeat their 2K time again in the future. I mean, I'm trying to connect their 2K time to their moderate intensity aerobic stuff. And most of the time, they'll see an improvement in that just because they're not super highly trained in that area. But now I've kind of anchored this more higher uh, performance, more sprinty 2K type thing with the lower intensity work. And most gotcha. of them are very type A. Like they want to see their numbers go up. They want to see their numbers change. 
And after a cycle of that, they're like, oh, wow, my, my 2K time went down by like 10 seconds or 15 seconds in some cases. Oh, so that low intensity crap I was doing was actually helpful. Oh. Yeah. And then like their rest periods between their set, if they monitor that, they're like, wow, I don't, I don't need to rest as much. I can yes. do more volume on my training days now. Oh, I feel better during the day. So, but you know, those things take six, eight, 12 weeks to, you know, to kind of get going too. Um, no, that's, that's fascinating and definitely something I want to dig into deeper, uh, at a later time sure. uh, in terms of work capacity and improving that and, and aerobic base and all that kind of stuff. But what something I do want to talk about before we wrap things up is, is the implications of utilizing intermittent fasting and how it affects this whole metabolic flexibility. What are we seeing uh, in the literature? What are you experiencing anecdotally? Yeah. So intermittent fasting, I just say, is a period of time where you're not consuming any calories. And if we look in the literature, uh, there's all sorts of fasting, right? There's, you know, the kind of long 24-hour fast. There's a 5-2 fast. There's an alternate day fast. There's data from Ramadan. There's yeah. time-restricted feeding. And the short answer on the literature is nobody really knows, okay. right? Because there's formerly probably seven different types of classifications, each with their own subclassification. Yeah, it's somewhat nebulous. So that makes it hard. So how I got into fasting was about, man, over 10, 12 years ago, because I'm like, okay, so if I think this fatty acid end of the spectrum is missing in most people, and we have data to show that, and that's related to aerobic base, cool, so I can do some fasted exercise that may help mm -hmm. with that. Is there anything else in terms of a metabolic hammer or supplement or anything else that I can use to kind of increase that end of the spectrum? I'm like, okay, so what's the main driver of that? If we were to pick one that we have a fair amount of dietary control over, it's probably going to be insulin. And we know as we drop insulin, even in healthy individuals, that's like the fuel selector switch, which I stole from Jeff Bullock, lower insulin is going to push you to use more fat. Like, okay, so if I believe that, what's the lowest way via nutrition, I can get insulin in a healthy person. Well, it turns out fasting is probably the lowest you can possibly get in a healthy individual. And after about 24 hours in healthy individuals, insulin will go down and just basically flatline. Now, with the advent of ketogenic supplements, I can get insulin probably in glucose even lower, but that's a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay, well, let me go and let's try some fasting. And around the same time, a buddy of mine had just started trying it uh, from Brad Pilon's book, Eat, Stop, Eat. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, this is a horrible idea, though. He's like, no, man, it's great. So I'm like, okay. So long story short, I tried it like the first day after I read the literature and convinced myself it might be useful. And I tried to go 24 hours. And at this time, I was eating every two and a half to three hours. Oh, okay, yeah. And I ran across the street and sat at a Chinese buffet for like two hours after about 12 hours in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, I did that twice more before I realized I'm like, oh, I'm so stupid. Too long. It's like if, yeah, it's too hard, right? So like yeah. if you came to my garage gym and, and you've never lifted a yeah. weight in your life, and I said, hey, let's deadlift 405. And if you can't do it, I'm just going to yell at you to try harder. You know, right. unless you're like, you know, Benny Magnuson or Brian Shaw or, you know, world champion deadlifter, it's not going to move, right? But I could say, well, let's just start at 135 or 185 or 95. It doesn't matter. Let's start within your capacity and then go up from there. So I found by shrinking that time that they do once per week and then only adding like a couple hours the following week, people were able to do more fasting. 
And so I accomplished within a microcycle, to me, all the benefits that a ketogenic approach happens, but I can come back the following day and give you like 300 grams of carbohydrates, no change to PDH, uh, no change to insulin, at least that we can tell. And you can use those carbohydrates, no downregulation of the carbohydrate machinery. And so now I can actually get, if I really wanted to go extreme, I could go a day of zero carbohydrates and a day of 500 carbohydrates the next day and be perfectly fine. So you're finding the main benefits within a, a one day fasting window, ideally up to 24 hours. Um, obviously that's something you train into, but, but within that, then that in and of itself helps improve carbohydrate utilization. Yeah, we don't really know exactly if it improves carb utilization. There is some studies showing changes in insulin sensitivity, things of that nature, um, but it doesn't degrade it. We kind of have pretty good data to show that for sure. Okay. And what I like about it is if I had you fast for just say 24 hours, I've cut all the calories out that you probably need to cut for that week, different exceptions with different people, but I'm getting pretty close, right? I've already put you in a massive caloric deficit for the week. I'm really upregulating the use of fat. I'll normally do that on an aerobic type day. And then from a health or longevity standpoint, everyone gets like super worried about mTOR and all these other, you know, changes and that kind of stuff. I do wonder about constantly running mTOR. It's a mammalian target of rapamycin. Yeah. Which is used for building muscle, is used for repair. So you yeah. definitely want that to be used. But I do have, I do wonder about running that 24 seven as hard as you can for years on end especially being in a hypercaloric state, which you know, yeah. most lifters are gonna do to gain muscle, which I totally get. Can I maybe hedge my bets and just take one day of upregulation of AMPK? You're not gonna lose muscle. Yes, you're not gonna gain as much muscle on that day, but take one seventh of the time and maybe hedge my bets a little bit more. Maybe I can upregulate fatty acid use. Maybe that'll translate throughout the week. And body comp and performance, I don't see a big difference in performance. Um, again, that's for someone who is a little bit worried about uh, health and different effects, probably a little bit older, uh, probably can't get away driving, you know, massive caloric surpluses as they used to. That's fascinating. I've been experimenting a lot with this, and I think you saw it, you know, I recently yeah, finished Yeah, the long that. fast, yeah. Yeah, so I did my own version of the, the Prolon fast, sure. and I've experienced incredible results post-fast just mm. simply from a, um, just in terms of how I felt from a training standpoint, from, you know, I'll say substrate utilization standpoint, just in terms sure. of the amount of calories that I'm eating um, and not, you know, gaining weight and uh, kind of... Uh, you know, blood sugar and insulin sensitivity, the amount of carbs that I'm eating. Um, it's been really, really interesting. So oh, very cool. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things I was going to do probably before I did my last seminar and just the schedule wise, I need a block of 10 days probably to pull it off where I'm not traveling and things of that nature. But um, yeah. I know my good buddy, Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota, I've talked to him about it. And his off-season guys, like he'll have them run that a week before their aerobic block. The thought being, which I would tend to agree with, although it's theoretical, right? We're maybe get some stem cell rejuvenation, but we're really driving insulin down hard. Yes. We're really operating AMPK. We're upregulating all the things that are probably useful for fat use and aerobic capacity 
maybe PGC1 alpha and some of the downstream sirtuins, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll run their aerobic base uh, after that. And he's seen some pretty good results doing that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. It's definitely something I'm going to keep in, but I'm going to continue to tweak it. Um, I felt like towards the end of the five days, uh, sort of um, the catecholamines were starting to get a little... Did you get really kind of... Pretty, jumpy, uh, kind of pretty elevated and yeah. I, I i know like in terms of you know if i'm not sleeping and my cortisol production and kind of how i'm feeling if it's starting to get a little too stressful and i felt like come come day you know end of day four day five i felt like i was starting to really experience a lot of internal stress um to the degree that it was getting to be a little too much and i, I likely could have gotten just as much benefit from just doing four days yeah. And I think you said you weight trained also during, is that correct? I did not weight train. You did not, okay. Simply because the, the calories were too low, yeah. but I would like to, I did nothing from a weight training standpoint. I, I moved a lot and I tried to get my 10,000 steps, but I'd like to keep some aspect of weight training because I did notice a reduction in, in muscle mass. But again, as you know, I was using like an in-body, I don't know, yeah, reliability from one day to the next, and what? And yeah, what the in body use does it look at total body water also? It does. Some do and some don't. Yeah. So, was there a difference in body water content? Uh, yeah, it looks at what is it? Total body water to extracellular water. Yep. Um, I think that's right. I'd have to look at it again. I'm pretty sure there was a difference, but I don't know how significant it was. And yeah. I'm, it was still yeah. within kind of like the the normal range. Yeah, because I wonder sometimes that would be because that'll throw off lean mass a little bit too. Of course, because your glycogen is of course, and I would expect you know obviously there's a pretty significant weight loss. I would expect a significant portion of that to be uh, water. Yeah, yeah, um, but oh, cool, that's then, fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting, but there's definitely something to it depending on the person, and it's a huge learning curve. Um, so as long as you're someone that, like you said, when in your first attempt at the 24 hour fast, yeah. <laughs> as long as you do it and then you go off the rails, yeah. uh, then you got to take a step back and start to implement a little more strategically. Yeah. So I think there's definitely a time and a place for those types of things. And, and I'm absolutely fascinated. I think definitely there's something to fasting that we all should be implementing to some degree consistently. We just have to figure out what that right mix is for us. Um, Cool, buddy. Tell us a little bit about your Flex Diet certification. Yeah, so what I want to do is take the concepts of flexible dieting plus metabolic flexibility, and I put them into a certification, which initially, to be perfectly honest, I did not want to do a certification because it seems like everybody and their brother has a certification now. And, you know, there's some really good ones out there, and there's some that are just complete crap and not very sure. useful. Um, but I also realized that that's a way a lot of trainers get information. And I wanted to not just put information out, but I wanted to put it into a system that was actually useful. So what I did was I said, okay, I've got eight interventions from protein, carbs, you know, micronutrition, sleep, exercise, et cetera. And I just ranked them one through eight. So the initial modules are the ones that ranked higher. The later modules are the ones that ranked lower. And within each module, there's a continual kind of story of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting that kind of iterates throughout the whole course. And then for the intervention, like protein, there's a one-hour lecture that says, okay, here's all the technical stuff you need to know about protein or fats or fasting based on research and that type of thing. 
And then the third video for each one is what are the explicit action items for it? So there's five of those action items because not all clients are going to want to do the exact same action item. Sure. So you have variety uh, within that. And then there's expert interviews from, you know, like protein, like guys like Dr. Stu Phillips and Jose Antonio uh, to flexible dieting guys like Dr. Eric Helms, uh, sleep, uh, Dr. Dan party, uh, different people throughout the course. So we'll do like a deeper dive. So we talked with Jose Antonio about protein overfeeding. Uh, I talked with Stu about just, you know, protein in general and some other things in collagen, right? So if they want more information, they can take the deep dive with someone who's legitimately like in the lab all day, like looking at those specific things. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Obviously you've been spending years and years studying this stuff and, and, and you know your stuff and our foremost authority in terms of, uh, you know, metabolic flexibility, flexible dieting, all things, nutrition and metabolism. And so if you guys are interested, make sure you go over, check it out at flexdiet.com and I'll have all the relevant links in the show notes. Dr. Mike, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I could definitely talk to you all day and pick your brain. Um, so we'll definitely, I, I want to circle back at some point and talk heart rate variability. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's it for today. And uh, thank you very much for your time, man. It's, it's really much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much for having on me and all the, the great questions and everything. I really appreciate it and all the work you've been doing too. So keep, keep spreading the good word. <laughs> Thanks brother. You too. And stay warm. Will do. Talk to you later. Did you love this episode of the smart nutrition made simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.